In our evening worship services, we have been working section by section through the book of 1 Corinthians. Tonight, we're up to chapter 8, and we're going to read the whole chapter. It's just 13 verses long. On a broad spectrum, if you recall in the design of the book, the first six chapters were kind of focused on things that Paul had heard that were going on in the, in the city of in the church of Corinth. Uh, issues that he felt he needed to address, like pride, divisions, the fact that they were suing each other, and their sexual immorality. And he talked about those things. And then in chapter 7, he transitioned to saying, now let me address some of the things that you asked me about. And now he's going to go from topic to topic, and that's where we are. And he already addressed in chapter 7 the topics around marriage and whether or not we should or need to get married and in chapter 8, we're going to start a whole new topic uh, that seems that they've asked him about, and uh, they want input, and he's going to start talking about that. So, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, by the way, 1,136 is the page number in your pew Bibles, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes these words. Now, concerning food offered to idols... We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist." However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so I said we're getting introduced to a new topic, and... The topic is pretty clear. What do we do about food that has been offered to idols? 
Now, food as a topic, into, well, first of all, this topic, let me just make clear, gets introduced in chapter 8, but it's going to carry it on all the way through chapter 10 into the first verse of chapter 11 before Paul wraps up his entire answer to this question that they are asking of him. But food back then in the first century culture of the Jewish faith and an enemy group, it was something that was a big deal. It's talked about very regularly, uh, thought about a lot more than what we often think about in terms of food and our relationship to the Lord. And there were all kinds of questions that people wanted to know about food. Uh, can we eat meat? Uh, can, what about the Old Testament dietary laws and the foods that we were prohibited to eat in the Old Testament but now seem to be available to us? Can we eat food with Gentiles or is that not allowed? Those were some of the questions that they were asking and tonight we come across another one. So let's recreate this particular issue. What's the basic question that appears was in that letter to Paul that the people wanted to know. Don't think too hard about this one. Can we eat food that has been offered to idols? Uh, is it okay if we eat that? Which was a fundamental question for the Corinthian church. Uh, the practice at the time was pretty prevalent and there was a lot to it. Uh, one commentator suggested that there was a lot of superstitions around demons in the Corinthian era, area, and it was assumed that demons could get into you through avenues of food. They would attach themselves to food, and then when you eat it, now you may be possessed by a demon. And so in order to deal with that practice, that was one of the reasons why they would maybe offer food to idols. And that is what was taking place. Uh, it was very common practice that you would go to the temples and sacrifice to their gods. Because again, they were also very fearful of, well, what happens if we don't properly honor and worship the gods that are in our city? And what are they going to do to us? And what consequences are we going to have to face if not everybody does this? And so what they would do is whenever they had an event... A feast, think wedding or a party, or even if they just wanted to eat meat. They would often go to the temple, which basically functioned as the butcher. And some of the animal would be burnt up in a sacrifice to the gods. Another portion of the animal would be given to the priests that did all of this. And then the last or the majority of the animal would be given back to the family to go off and have their feast and to enjoy uh, their time together. As an example, one commentary had a, a copy of an invitation to a feast that was written on papyrus that was quite simple, but it says, Antonius, son of Ptolemaeus uh, invites you to dine with him at the table of our Lord Serapis. And that comment, the table of our Lord Serapis, Serapis was the god that this feast was honoring and the food had been offered in his name. And so the invitation to the party was seen as eating at the table of this god. And so in short, to not 
eat food offered to idols was actually to exclude yourself from a lot in that society. You often wouldn't be able to buy meat that was sold in the marketplace because that too had been offered to the gods. You wouldn't be able to go to these parties and these social events. You'd have to exclude yourself from quite a bit. So the question is there, can we do it? And, as often is the case, there seem to be two sides to that question, both of which were represented in the Corinthian church. So the one side, obviously, is yes. Yes, it's okay to go ahead, eat the food. What was the argument behind that side that was sort of spelled out in our text? Exactly. Yeah, Mike says, uh, it, it starts this issue of knowledge, right? And we know that this animal was offered to a meaningless piece of wood. Yes, it was shaped into something, and people call that an image of a god, but we know there are no other gods. They don't exist, and this idol is just a chunk of wood or a, a concrete structure, or not concrete, but a, a whatever, stone structure, and so it's meaningless. We know that this is just a, a, a meaningless exercise, and it doesn't change the meat. It doesn't do anything for it. So yes, we should be able to eat this food. And that's exactly right. That seems to be pretty clearly the argument for the yes side. But then there's the no side. Admittedly, this is not as laid out. But what seems to be those that are saying, like, no, we, we shouldn't eat that food. Carl? I'd have to think through that one. I, that wasn't a parallel that I had kind of thought through. You, I mean, you are certainly right and to a certain extent that there, there's some beliefs behind it. And that is the difference, right? They believed it was no big deal. And the other group believed that it did mean something. And, and so, yeah, I guess there is that parallel there. That in them, it's like, this means something. This was offered to an idol. And so when we sit there and eat this food... For all intents and purposes, for ourselves and everyone watching, it looks like we're participating in that. That's a false God. And when we participate in that, as Christians, we should not be doing that. We must remove ourselves. And that's the issue. That's the dilemma. That's the question. We've got people in the church on both sides. Paul, what is right? Now, if you had to guess... Which side seems to be carrying the, the weight in the church that has a little bit more dominant voice? This is speculation entirely. The tradition in not eating it is, is the suggestion. And that very well could be. Uh, that would probably be more of like the Jewish side. Or, well, actually, no. Well, Jews for certainly would be concerned about that, but also those that had been out of those religions and said, this, this means something. 
Now, the yes side seems like they were the ones that probably wrote the letter, if I just have to guess. Because of the quotes that we have, it seems like what was asked of Paul, and again, we're, we're somewhat speculating here, but we're trying to recreate with the information that we have. They're saying like, hey, we know, we have this knowledge, so Paul, it is okay, right? So who's right? We got two sides. Who's right? <laughs> and in the short, in at least this section, Paul kind of tips his hat to the, to the yes side. And I know you were saying yes to both, but to the yes side. And he does say, you know what? You are right. There is no other God. There's only one. And so those idols are just pieces of wood, and offering this food to those gods doesn't change it, and so we can eat. He says in verse 8, we are no worse off if we do not eat, and we are no better off if we do. So when it comes to the food itself, Paul says, you can eat, but as we will find out, there's a couple of restrictions he puts around that. First of all, one that we'll see tonight, but later on, uh, just in chapter 10, he'll address that sometimes it's not, and I should have quoted this exactly because uh, I knew I would remember it. it was, it's, it's not the menu, it's the venue. It's where this takes place and the setting that can make a big difference as well. That will be later developed but he also says, but in the short of it, to be clear, Paul seems to side more with the yes, eat. Uh, and in some ways, the answer is feel free. You are free to eat food that has been offered to idols. Except that's not his ultimate answer to the question. Uh, because there's a deeper issue that is at play here. And the real issue seems to be not just about eating the food, but it's, it's hinted to at verse 7 when he says, not all possess this knowledge. And verse 9 saying, but take care that this right of yours to eat this food does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So now let's recreate that issue. So Paul, agreeing with those that say, yes, you're free to eat. So they go into the temple, and they're eating this food. And while they're eating it, another member of the church is walking by, and they see that they're eating this food that has been offered to an idol, knowing that they know it's been offered to an idol, and the person eating it knows it's been offered to an idol. And what does that do to them? It pricks their conscience. They said they shouldn't be doing that. Or actually, should they? I mean, I always thought this was wrong, but this is a, a person in the church that I know and I respect, and if they can eat that food, maybe I can too. Maybe it's okay for me to participate in idolatry in that way. And maybe it's all right that I can be both a Christian and a worshiper of these other idols and other gods and, and do both. And so they do. 
what happens then, Paul uses very strong language, especially in verses 11 and 12. He says, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. You are sinning against your brother and therefore also sinning against Christ. You are wounding their conscience. And so when we look at this issue, all of a sudden we develop some very interesting implications for the broader topic of how we look at some of this stuff. Number one, and I want to be a little careful in how this is worded, and I'll talk about it and develop it, but to a certain extent it appears that there are some things in terms of temptation and even sin that is somewhat subjective. Meaning that there are things that person A might be tempted by and drawn toward and ought not to do because it will harm their relationship with God, that person A is not nearly as tempted by and doesn't harm them as much. An example that, I, that struck home for me on this was back when I was in college, after we had finished a, up a play production, a bunch of us got some cigars to kind of celebrate and enjoy together and that night, we passed out cigars and had some. And for me, that was not a big deal at all. Um, just a, another way of sort of celebrating and, you know, you'd puff on a cigar for a couple of times and throw it away, and it was no big deal. But for one of my friends, that was a big deal. And I learned the next day that having smoked with us, his conscience was greatly stricken. And that had hurt his relationship with God. He had wrestled with this all through the previous night. Now, admittedly, or in my defense, we didn't know about that in advance. But for him, it was wrong to have participated in that. And if we had known, it would have been wrong of us to put him in that spot where we tempted him. But again, for at least me, it wasn't that big of a deal. And so I didn't even think of it. But for him, it really struck his conscience. And because of that, I would say that was a sin for him. And it would have been a sin for me if I would have put him in that spot knowingly. Now, the caveat I'm putting to that is that that is not for everything. And there are clearly sins that are sins regardless of who you are and whether or not you are conscience-stricken by them. You can't say, you know, well, cheating doesn't bother me, it doesn't bug me, so I can go ahead and do that. I can steal answers from other people. No. But there are some of those things that for one person may be a sin, for another's not so much. For one, a strong temptation, but for others... Uh, fairly meaningless. Secondly, sometimes, as a principle that gets developed, sometimes the sin isn't in the action itself, but the way that that actions affect other people. So again, Paul is saying, when it comes to eating the meat, it, you're free to do that. But in doing that, you may still be sinning if you're leading to the downfall of another believer. 
And so even though you are free to participate in this activity, it's not the activity that is sinful. It's the effect that activity is going to have on others that you have to be more worried about. And that is where you are crossing the line into sin. And the big issue, a part of this that he's dealing with, is the issue of arrogance, once again, in the Corinthian church. He says in verse 1, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Yes, these people all knew there is only one God. And in their arrogance, they're like, well, we've got this meat thing figured out, and so we can deal with it, no big deal. And they felt better about themselves because they felt free to eat this food. And they were judging the others, saying, well, they're less than. If they're that weak that they can't do that, they don't realize the freedom that they have in Christ. And it was that arrogance that Paul was really addressing Now, with all of that in the background, what then does become Paul's final answer to that question? Can we eat food offered to idols? And I'll just quote him in verse 15. I'm sorry, verse 13. There is no 15. In verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So that's neat. Food offered to idols, does that apply to us? First of all, it kind of does. And let's not overlook the fact that often we go to donut shops or to Chinese restaurants, and they've got a little idol of a Buddha. And that is because they have offered part of the food that they have made to that false god. And we are, based on the principle that says free, to eat that food without violating our conscience or God being aware of what may or may not that do to others. But what other issues could this apply to? Now, I thought about throwing that out there and noticing the clock. We're going to run out of time. But let me quickly, I guess, burn through a couple of ones that I thought about. Some of them are on the maybe more silly side. Lifting hands in worship. Now, obviously, for many, that is a very free expression of my praise and worship to God. And I get caught up in the moment, and so we lift our hands to God. There are, however, others, many even, in our tradition that have been taught that that's a way to draw attention to yourself. And rather than glorifying God, you're trying to get other people to look at you and think about what a great worshiper you are. And in fact, because of that, there may be times when if you lift your hands in worship to God, you're distracting those around you. And so it might call for wisdom in what to do. Is it wrong to raise your hands in worship? Absolutely not. Are there times, though, where wisdom says that might not be the best practice? Yeah, maybe. When you think about eating, You know, if someone, does it matter if you are a vegetarian or not? No. Should we sit across a vegetarian and pull out our our sandwiches and cheeseburgers and mock them and eat them to their face and say, look at how foolish you are. Look what I can do. I got this great bacon on here. Isn't that delicious? No. Don't mock them. That's disregarding. That's where sin comes in. 
Another, and I think a, a clearer and maybe a much more applicable one, comes around the issue of drinking. The Bible has an interesting standard. Alcohol, in and of itself, is not sinful. But drunkenness is. And there are many people that can be around alcohol and drink, the term our culture uses, is responsibly. It doesn't. They don't have to be tempted, and they won't cross that line into drunkenness that quickly. But there are many others that if there is alcohol around, and if they do start drinking at all, very quickly they cross that line over into drunkenness. And so it may not be a sin for you to have a drink at a social gathering, but it may also be very much a sin to have alcohol in the company of one you know struggles with drunkenness. And so you may be free to enjoy alcohol, but you may be sinning against your brother if you put them in that spot where they are going to be tempted beyond their ability to stand. And maybe we need to be much more conscious about abusing our freedom to the harm of our brother in Christ or sister in Christ. Furthermore, and I know a time is short, but I'll go ahead and step in it. This is a text that often got quoted and we wrestled a lot with when it came to wearing masks during the time of COVID. Who was the weaker brother? One person might say, I know that those masks do nothing to help the transmission and keep it down. Where another person says, if you don't wear a mask, you don't care about the lives of others and you are putting them at risk and at danger of dying. Now again, the action in and of itself may not be wrong or right. You may be free to do either. But in love, how do we care for our brothers in situations and sisters in Christ in those types of situations? And that wisdom has to wrestle with that. That's the principle of 1 Corinthians 8. It's one we're going to continue as Paul continues with that conversation and he'll talk in chapter 9 about his own freedoms. And so we're not done with this conversation. And if you have questions, we can develop those a little bit more next week. But already now, hear the principle. When it comes to food offered to idols, what I should be less concerned about is what I am free to do and what I should be more concerned about is how does my freedom affect the relationship of my brothers and sisters with Jesus. And so that's what we're encouraged to be thinking about. And again, we're going to continue these thoughts as we keep walking through that. But let's go ahead and bow our heads and, and pray to our Lord. Lord God and Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for knowing you as you are. And I grieve well against all of those throughout time, history, and space that have been deceived by false gods who have given so much of their lives to something that is completely empty and meaningless. And yet, Lord, I also want to ask that you forgive us for taking our relationship with you too lightly, abusing the freedoms that we have and forgetting about the obligation of love and concern for our brothers and sisters in Christ and how our actions may either encourage them and stir them on to deeper walk with you or may discourage them and pull them away. Lord, give us the wisdom that we need through your Holy Spirit. 
Open our eyes to not be so selfish about our own desires, but may we consciously be aware of how we are interacting with those around us so that all of us do that work of encouraging us to grow closer to you as we serve you in all that we do, all we say, all we eat, and in every aspect of our lives. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.